The culture promises women that abortion is the solution to a problem. But what many ultimately discover is that abortion doesn't solve problems, it creates them. How can pastors, counselors, doctors, and the Catholic community help those women as they struggle through the aftermath of an abortion? Join us today as we discuss that question with Dr. Martha Schuping, a psychiatrist with over 20 years experience working with post-abortive women and the author of The Four Steps to Healing. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University. Uh, today we'll be talking about post-abortive women and the healing process. Uh, I'm joined here in our studios with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here again at Franciscan University. And we're happy to welcome Dr. Martha Schuping. Uh, who's a psychiatrist for over 20 years, and uh, you've had your medical degree from Wake Forest, you've got an MA in pastoral ministry from the University of Dayton. Um, you've worked uh, for over 20 years working with post-abortive women, um, and over the years you've worked with the Rachel Network, pioneering the Rachel Evening of Prayer for Healing After Abortion, and provided clinical instruction on leadership training for Rachel's Vineyard. So welcome to the program. Thank you. It is, it is, it is good to have you here, but this is a rather challenging topic. Um, so first, if you could help us, just uh, going into an abortion, what does a woman expect to feel afterwards? Or in other words, what, what kind of uh, message is the culture sending a woman uh, about the aftermath of her abortion? Well, I think sometimes when you see situations in television or movies when people have had abortion, it's kind of just nothing. You do it and there's not a consequence. And I think people expect that. And many women have said afterwards, I had no idea it would be this way. I thought I would feel relief. I thought I would, uh, I thought I would feel better. And many women say it affected me a lot more than I expected. So they really don't have an expectation of what they're getting into. And I know people say to me that they've been to abortion counselors and they were told, oh, don't worry about it. Everybody does it, you'll be fine. Um, you'll have another child later on when it's better. And so they have a lot of expectations that it's gonna be an easy thing, it's just nothing. Um, it makes them unpregnant. But then later, they find that for many women, their experience was different. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. I mean, so what's the contrast? What's the reality of what they actually experience well, after going through an abortion? The missing piece is that most people don't realize that many, many women bond to their child mm. before the abortion ever takes place. That um, there's bonding even in that first trimester and sometimes soon after conception. Mm. And there was a study in Sweden where they surveyed women at the abortion clinic for first trimester abortion and they asked them questions to indicate whether the people had bonded to their babies and 67% um, of the women said they thought of it in terms of a child really? and 50% of them felt a need to do special acts afterwards. Things like some of the women wrote that they had, one woman said, I wrote a I lit a candle from the little one and I had to ask forgiveness of the little one. So even in a culture there 
where the majority are not religious, right. the majority are very accepting of abortion, even then there was um, evidence of bonding to the child. Mm. And when women come to me, they don't talk about, oh, I'm concerned about the products of my conception, I'm concerned about the medical waste, they're concerned about their baby. And so if I say baby, some people are offended by that, people who are um, pro-choice and some people who say, oh, I had an abortion, it was fine, then they're offended if you bring a baby. But mm. the women who come to me who've had problems, they're concerned about their baby and what happened to their baby. And they don't realize there's a disconnect because many women um, going into the abortion, they've already had those thoughts about their baby. They may have named their baby. They're looking forward to the pregnancy. And yet, in many cases, because of pressure from other people, they make a decision, they're gonna have that abortion, and people have said, oh, you're not gonna feel anything, it'll be fine, you wait for a better time, it'll be good. And yeah. then they miss their baby, and their baby's not there. So that's really the crux of the problem for those women who are, are dealing with painful emotions after the abortion. Yeah. They are experiencing grief and guilt as well. Lost and yes, oh. oh, tears and suicidal thoughts. It can be a range of things. For some women it's not as severe, but for some women it can be very, very severe. I, I think uh, for the sake of truth, we need to uh, insist that this is a dirty little secret and mm -hmm. the abortion industry has a vested interest in the maintenance and, and perpetuation of that lie. That's right. And of course, Satan is the father of lies, and, and that dirty secret surrounds the procedure uh, and informs the whole culture of death. I, I find it really instructive that it's the women themselves who seem to be most acutely aware that what they're getting rid of is life, a child, mm -hmm. yeah. perhaps the only child they will ever have. You can almost get a sense of how awkward this is for the people who are advocating abortion, the so-called pro-choicers, you know, because on the one hand, you, they must think, well, this is sort of moralistic residue from their upbringing, where they had these views in, imbued in them, where they, they thought that this is wrong, and so this is what's left over. On the other hand, they're probably concerned also that if these women are allowed to go public to describe the anguish that they go through, lighting a candle or whatever, you know, what are pro-lifers going to do with that? Right. You know, yeah. and so it might be suppressed, kept private, you know, and. It's just one of those things where the women themselves are precisely victimized a second time around, as it were. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. You had that wonderful example of, in your book about uh, the eraser that uh. Uh, the abortion provider said, look, this is so trivial, so innocuous, that it's like mm -hmm. having an eraser. You wipe away this, this stain, this memory. And then the woman says, well, how, how can it be that I'm able to count the number of years of the children I might have had if they hadn't been aborted, if it's just an eraser effect. Right, and it's not. There, there was a study in England of women who had reached the age of menopause and they were looking back on their abortion. And the authors expected when they were interviewing the women, they thought that by the time they got into menopause, they would have dealt with any emotions. They would have looked back and said, yes, it was a good decision. And in fact, it was universally negative. Wow. And it was so negative that, um, the authors said, even though it was a qualitative study, so it's not really generalizable, they said, you know, we really need to make sure that there's counseling available for women at all stages of their life after abortion because it seems to be a persistent issue. But all of the women in that study were looking back and remembering, and they'd been, you know, counting the birthdays and thinking about the child year after year. So it's not something that goes away by itself for many women. But I don't know that it's always necessarily a lie, but that some people believe the you know, that, that there's not going to be a repercussion because apparently not everyone does, or at any rate, not everyone does right away. Some women may get 
to, um, you know, they have the abortion, and then 15 years later when they're dealing with infertility, now they're not going to have a child, and then they think, oh my goodness, that was my only child, and they think yeah. about it. Or later when they go through a pregnancy and they see the ultrasound of their first intended child, and then they look and they're horrified to think, yes, there was an earlier child. So it can come up at different stages in the life cycle, but the women who are doing the counseling at the abortion clinic, they could sincerely believe they had an abortion, it was fine. You know, in a way they, they need to justify their own decision, right. but I don't know that it's always in every case an intentional lie. Um, the, mm. the reality, though, is that there certainly are many women, perhaps more than half, as I said in the Swedish study, 67% identified right. it as their child. Now, you right. also cite a statistic by, I think it's David Reardon, that 88% of the women uh, he canvassed said, if only somebody had encouraged me to have this child, That's I right. might have gone ahead and, and spared the child's uh, life. Reardon had done a study where he asked, was anyone pressuring you, and if so, who? And it was my mother, my father, the doctor, the counselors at the clinic, the social worker, my friends. Um, it was everybody, and it added up to more than 100% because there were so many different people. Right. Um, but then he asked the question, if anyone had encouraged you differently, would you have wanted to carry the child to term? And it was a very large majority who said, yes, I would have. Wow. Um, you know, and the majority of the women wanted their child if it would have been a better time. But one of the things that is said at the clinics now, people say, oh, don't be selfish. Don't just think of yourself. Right. And you know, wow. the boyfriend needs to finish college, or the husband yeah. is just getting started with his career. The mother-in-law thinks it's a bad idea. They're having to help out with things, and it's just not fair. You're being selfish to want your own child. Yeah. And so there's a lot of pressure that comes to bear. So the woman is really thinking of everyone but herself because their own heart. Many times when you read stories that women have written about their own abortion or when they come to me and tell their story, they wanted the child, but nobody else wanted them to have the child. And often, you know, people ask, well, where will you live? You know, parents can say to a daughter, well, where will you live if you have this baby? You know, that right. they're not gonna help them. No one There's will so help. There's so much pressure. There is a great deal oh. of pressure. Yeah. And so for that reason, uh, many women who wanted their children are not having their children, and that's the thing, and it's, it is very it, It's tragic that the pressure comes from people who don't have to bear the burden. That's right. the pain. Right. That's right. right. And so they're acting as though they're selfless, saying, oh, you know, do it for this reason or for that reason, and yet they're really not doing much to assist yeah. at that point. I, it was curious that when you listed the forces, the people that conspire against this child and the woman, you left out the boyfriend, yeah. Yeah. the father, who... So I mean, that, that's an extraordinary thing, that, that he also would be pressuring uh, this woman uh, right. not to bring to term a life that he had a hand in creating. Yeah. Right, yeah. and there are cases where men have murdered women for failing to have an abortion. You know, they said, look, you need to do this. No, I don't want a baby. You need to take care of it. And when the women refused, there, there have been cases where they've been shot yeah. and where the men have been convicted. In one case, it was, it was considered a double homicide right. under Florida law that uh, man nice. killed the woman and the child. And, the child. and it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where murder is a leading cause of death of pregnant women in the United States. And in some states, it has been demonstrated to be the leading cause of death. Oh my goodness. You know, you have to be pretty right. healthy to have a baby anyway. Right. And you're right. going through a pregnancy, you're a young, healthy woman. What will you die of? Not many things, but homicide, yes, today. Oh wow, wow. Yeah. So that's the degree of pressure. There, there seems like there's so much suffering um, uh, for, for these women. You know, to what degree do they suffer in silence? Or what, what does that really yeah. mean? For many women, they don't know where to get help afterwards. And if you are grieving the loss of the child, the child is gone. So, 
you know, you, you can feel, well, what is there for me then? Mm -hmm. And so people may not seek help. People, there's a great deal of shame, mm -hmm. and there's also a great deal of secrecy. And many women have had the abortion to preserve the secret. They don't want anyone to know they're pregnant, or their parents may have been embarrassed if it was an unwed pregnancy, and they don't want anybody to know. So because of the secrecy, they, they feel they can't tell anyone. But just to give you an example, there was a lady who phoned me. She had seen an ad for an evening of prayer service that was mm -hmm. being conducted in a parish. And she called and she said, I don't think I can come that night because we, my husband doesn't know about the abortion and we've got a business Christmas party. But she says, I've been going to mass with the family for 10 years and nobody knows. And I've, I've been permanently excommunicated, is, was her perception. That's not true. But she believed she could not return to the sacraments because it was all over. And that is a common misconception. Women believe they've committed the unforgivable sin or they believe they're permanently excommunicated. And so for 10 years, she had been suffering in silence. And I know women, um, one lady who was in her 80s who'd had an abortion, who asked me, she phoned, and she was too old to come out to an evening service, but she'd seen the ad for that. So even the ads can be wow. therapeutic. And she asked, she said, I can't tell my own pastor, but she said, can you connect me with a priest I can talk oh to? Because it had been all that time that she was still caring. And it. that's shame. That, yes, that's and then, shame. And then they don't seek out the help. And the right, right, that exactly. Really that prevents them from seeking I'm grateful help. that you point out that John Paul, Saint Pope John Paul, you know, in Gospel of Life, I think it was section 99, I forget. It was. Yeah, where he, he gives us absolute assurance that God's mercy is that medicine that is available. Mm -hmm. that this is not an unpardonable sin. Right, yeah. right. That kind of assurance, I think, is deep, and it's, it's healing. Well, I think w the sad thing is that many women have never heard that. No. And it needs yeah. to be read at Mass once in a right. while, or it needs to be talked about, and talked about in faith formation classes. Um, we always read that at the Rachel's Vineyard retreats. That's given out at any of the Catholic retreats. And, you know, in Evangelium Vitae it says, I would like now to say a special word to women who've had an abortion. Yeah. Yeah. The church knows that the decision may have been shattering and the wound in your heart may not yet have healed, but trust yourself to the Father of mercies yeah. who is waiting to forgive you. Oh, and right. so there is forgiveness it's there. God is just state, waiting right. to heal mm, people. Mm. And so they're not excluded, but they don't know that. And so it just needs to be, I think that's something where we need to step out because the women are so broken right. that that's not something where they can even make that first step because they feel they're just shut out. It's right. over for them. There's no hope. And yet there's, there's the real truth there. You know, the, the disconnect is really quite shocking and it's everywhere. On the one hand, we, we live in a culture of openness. Right. Mm -hmm. Nothing is off limits. You can do whatever you want, say whatever you want, whenever, wherever. And yet the silence is massive. It's endemic when it comes to the aftermath of killing your child. Nobody talks about that. Mm. And, and to sort of condemn these women to a state of isolation and shame and fear and guilt, like the case of the 80-year-old woman, mm -hmm. 60 years mm -hmm. of having to carry that burden, seems to me intolerable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents as we go deeper into the steps of healing after an abortion. The research seems clear that women do have negative consequences associated with abortion. For younger women, those risk factors include the fact that they're often pressured into getting an abortion. Sometimes they have to conceal the pregnancy, conceal the abortion, so they don't have the support that maybe older women might have. 
for women that who have an abortion, they often get into many self-destructive behaviors or have negative consequences that might include substance abuse, depression, anxiety, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, self-hatred and guilt. And so it really behooves us to be supportive of these women, to be loving and kind and compassionate with them so that we can help them work through these emotions. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking with Dr. Martha Schuping and her book, uh, The Four Steps to Healing. Um, Martha, we, we talked about the suffering uh, that post-abortive women go through, the reality of it, the silence uh, that they often suffer with. Uh, but let's talk now a little bit about the healing that's possible. I, you know, for some, they may not realize that healing and forgiveness is possible. Um, so what are the four bonds or relationships that need to be restored uh, in order for healing to really take place? Well, in my experience, the majority of women who come to me asking for help have had issues related to God, related to the child, related to other people in their lives, and with themselves. And if you leave out one of those pieces, very often it's kind of a missing piece and that person is not able to fully heal. Uh, many women, for instance, women who have acted against their own religious beliefs, they can feel profound guilt mm. and feel very cut off from God. One of the first, in fact, the first patient I ever had when I was still in my training program had come to had come to the hospital because she was suicidal but the thing that had happened was she had an abortion she did not want she believed it was wrong but both her husband and the Protestant pastor they went to for advice had thought that the abortion was a good idea so wow. on the advice of her pastor and her husband she had the abortion and um, afterwards she felt it was the unforgivable sin she couldn't pray and she was just completely distressed. So that's certainly an area that we, we see many women want to reconcile with God, but they don't know where to begin. And uh, each of those areas has its, its place. Oh. Uh, how, how does a, uh, the abortion or the, the aftermath of it affect a woman's relationship with others? Like, a, what, what does that look like, or what does that mean when you say we need to he have healing in that relationship well, with others? One of the things is simply that the abortion is so isolating yeah. that um, she's had the secret, she can't talk to anyone about it, and she's all alone with mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so it is an isolating experience, but we're really made for community. And you need to have those connections with other people. And so uh, one of the things about some of the group programs for healing after abortion is that it gets you with other people. Nice. And you're able to talk to others who've had a similar experience, realize you're not alone, and actually get support from other people. So that can be an important step. You can certainly heal on your own or just with a priest or a counselor, but certainly the group programs can be very, very helpful for those who have the courage to take that step. But I think the other thing is that so often uh, we underestimate how much pressure there is out there. And if, for example, 
the parents have said, look, we're going to cut off your college funds unless you have this abortion, then there's a breach with her family. Right. And she's not going to have that, that support. The same uh, if the boyfriend... That's really damaging to a relationship. Oh, of course. A profound way. And when, when you're married and your husband didn't want your baby, a baby that you'd bonded to, that you wanted, and your husband is like, no, we need the money for something else, you know, right. that you feel very devalued. And so there's a lot of work and healing in that marriage that may be needed. Yeah. So one of the things that I love about Rachel's Vineyard, that is a weekend retreat program, and they do permit husbands and wives to go through it together. Even though many of the programs are designed just for women, and Rachel's Vineyard started out for women, but they do allow men to attend, whether as an individual or within a couple. And that's one thing that can really heal the couple relationship, is to go through that together. Yeah, yeah I, I'm really impressed by the, the apostolate, the work that you do, that you've really helped help to uh, pioneer. We, we've heard quite enough about the humanity of the unborn child. That, that has been established beyond cavil, and also the immorality of taking that child's life. But your focus, I think, is so salutary on the humanity of the woman and how wounded she is, shattered by this experience. I mean, none of us here, the men, uh, can, can speak to that dimension uh, because we've never bonded with unborn babies. We, we have to wait until they're born to recognize And sometimes even longer. It, 20 or 30 <laughs> years when they finally grow up. But what could be more isolating, more atomizing than to have an abortion and then the most significant people in your life won't talk to you about yeah. it? And you're crying out for some kind of communion with others. The, the four steps that, that you outline correlate so neatly, I think, with what the church has always understood uh, about sin, the mm -hmm. etiology of sin, a kind of fourfold enmity. You find yourself estranged from God, from others, from nature, from yourself. And the only way you can overcome that is atonement at oneness. Mm -hmm. uh, because you're split in two, sixes and sevens. It's disintegrating, and abortion seems to be so symptomatic of this. Mm -hmm. So the remedy that you lay out seems to be really providential. Mm -hmm. Well, the Rachel's Vineyard Retreat was actually written by Dr. Teresa Burke, who's a counseling psychologist. And I've just had the privilege of being able to do it in my own diocese and a next-door diocese, and then to be able to take it uh, as a trainer to some of the other countries as well. Rachel's Vineyard is in, uh, it's on every continent now, and it's in more than 20 languages, and so it's really spread. There's just been a universal need for this, but I do love it because it, um, it does have full church approval. It has an imprimatur. It is a recommended resource by the uh, Catholic Project Rachel. Um, it's available both in a Protestant and a Catholic version so that it's accessible to anyone, but it really does for the Catholic version, it helps women to come back to the sacraments, but it, it kind of does it in a logical stepwise thing because you come in, you're very afraid, you don't know what's this going to be, am I going to be judged, and one of the first things we do is talk about what are your fears of being judged and who's judging you. We actually read the story of the woman who was going to be stoned to death that Jesus saved. And you, you can imagine yourself as that mm. woman and you know, the men are there with their rocks and you're gonna die and then you realize that Jesus has done something to stop that. Right. And then we talk about, you know, is, uh, you know. Yeah. You know the, the idea that you can be forgiven has got to be proclaimed. Mm -hmm. But even more, the, the notion that you can be healed, mm -hmm. yes. that it's not gonna just be a magic wand that is waved in one weekend, but a process that can really begin and that can continue. So forgiveness and healing and reconciliation 
with God, with the child in a way, mm-hmm. you know, with others yes. as well as yourself. But I think the most, uh, you know, the, the most powerful part of this is to recognize that the people who are being forgiven and healed and reconciled are themselves going to be empowered to reach out right. and draw others in yeah. because there is nothing more convincing and also more persuasive, but beyond that, inspiring. more bonding, yeah, yeah inspiring right. than a person who's gone through it to convince you that you can too. That's mm-hmm. right. That's yeah. so mm-hmm. true. You, uh, you draw a really useful distinction in your book between forgiveness and reconciliation that I might ask you to, to speak about, uh, mm-hmm. uh, enlarge upon that. And, I mean, the example that you give of, of Jesus on the cross is very telling. He forgives mm-hmm. both thieves, but only one uh, can he reconcile with. Mm-hmm. Right. So women who have had abortions, they can forgive those who conspired to make it happen, but they may not yet be ready to reconcile with them. They can have peace without the experience of peace with those who really preyed upon mm-hmm. them. I think one of the barriers to forgiving others can be that you're afraid, will I have to let this person back into my life? Will right. I be right. safe? And if a woman was raped, Or if she was a victim of domestic violence, no, she doesn't have to let dangerous people back into her life. People who are hurtful to her well-being, they don't have a place in her life. But you can still, it's just like if if your hands are filled with a big, huge boulder, you have to set that down to be able to receive what God has for you. So I think forgiveness is like laying down that rock, and yet then it's a matter of discernment. Is this a relationship that I'm called to reconcile? Or is this someone I have to to keep at a distance? Yeah. Well, and talk about the child and, okay. and, and how that bond and that relationship uh, is healed. Or What I always see is that that's really pivotal, and it's almost that the woman has to deal with that central issue. Yes. If, if they have bonded to their child already and they have concerns about the child, which is the case normally with the women who come to me, um, in that case, they have to deal with that before they feel that they're worthy to receive forgiveness or before they, they can heal in other areas. And, um, you know, when that's preying on their mind, what they do at the Rachel's Vineyard is that they, um, they have an opportunity to name their child while they're lighting a candle. And they actually, mm. we reenact the story of the woman at the well, and we pour out from a pitcher and say, Lord Jesus, I accept your living water. And so we have this beautiful crystal oh, beautiful. bowl, and then we're lighting the candles, floating candles, and naming the child. So each woman gives their child a name, then they have an opportunity to write a letter to the child to express the feelings that they're carrying in their heart. Yeah. And a lot of times that is very meaningful for them. And sometimes they write their letter when they're in adoration in the chapel. But then during um, the last day of the retreat on Sunday, there's a memorial service and women have an opportunity to symbolically place their baby in God's hands, mm-hmm. to entrust their child to God and know that God is looking after that child in some way. And when they have peace with that, it is transformative. And then they're able, you know, when they have that, that closure in that situation and know that that is right, then they are everything able else. to, yeah, everything else falls into place for them. Yeah, it seems like that's the hinge. Without it that, it really can't go further. You can't mm-hmm. imagine yourself being forgiven and healed if you don't, both from a reality standpoint of truth, you know, this is what happened, but also mm-hmm. from a, a very personal way to, mm-hmm. to name that child. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this, it depends on the woman's own belief system, but certainly in the Catholic retreats, 
the woman would understand the child as being part of that communion of saints, mm -hmm. so the child really can be an intercessor for those women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this cool. never comes up in, in the public conversation <laughs> right. that we're supposed to have. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, women who are, are identified as being pro-women, mm -hmm. feminists, they never talk about this. And yet, this is being pro-woman in the most mm -hmm. profound way. They, they care about everything that impinges on the health and wholeness of this woman who is, in a way, a victim. Mm -hmm. Well, there are specific risk factors that are known by the abortion industry. There's, there's two textbooks that I own that have the logo of the National Abortion Federation on the cover. So they're authoritative from the abortion provider side. And they talk about particular risk factors that would place a woman at greater risk for having problems after abortion. So those mm -hmm. are things like if you had bonded to the baby first prior to the abortion, if you were being pressured or coerced, if you had religious beliefs, um, or if you believed that abortion was murder, if you had that as a yeah. belief. And so there are many things that identify subgroups of women. One of the textbooks lists 18 risk factors wow. for risk groups who would tend to have problems, more likely to have problems. If someone was going to have a problem after abortion, it would be a woman in one of those categories. So women who may not have been in those categories, if they didn't have any religious beliefs, or you know they thought it was the clump of tissue and they were not being pressured, they, you know, there may be women who have a different experience. And so I think both groups of women could think the other group is just flat out lying. And it may be misunderstandings. You know, some women don't bond to their children, although I think there's evidence that probably the majority do, and certainly of the women who come to me, it's huge. That's why the Scandinavian example was so telling, because people who were testifying without really an extensive religious background right. or a right. transcendent moral system nevertheless testify to the fact that they had bonded. Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, that's and that right. they had felt that break. That's, that's also been seen even like in, there was a study of Russian and American women and they asked them much mm -hmm. later after the abortion, did you feel close or attached to your child or to the pregnancy? And something like 37%, uh, it was either the, I think the Russians were 37% and the Americans 39%. Uh, so that's a big chunk of those women. Right. In Australia, there were 40% of the women at, for a first trimester abortion, 40% were saying that they um, had talked to their fetus. Wow. So, and wow. probably if they're talking to their fetus, they're not thinking it's a fetus. And it's so, a baby. So why, why is it important for a woman to reconnect with herself as part of this healing process? Well, there's so much shame, and many women, um, even like in the English study, the women at menopause, one woman said, oh, I still have nightmares, and it's just one more thing I have to hate about myself. Uh, and there was a lot of shame as well. There was the bonding to the baby that was still evident, but there was also a, a threat of shame that the women were all experiencing. And some women make suicide attempts, or they have thoughts about suicide. You know, if I could just drive into a wall, I would have some relief. And it's like she needs to come to peace with herself right. also. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it helps when they realize, when they start to realize, look, there was some pressure on me and um, other women have been through this. I wasn't the only one. Um, but most of all, when they have the peace with the child and they have peace with God, they can begin to have that transformation within themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what um, Pope John Paul said also, as you pointed out in Evangelium Vitae, that he said, you will be among the most eloquent witnesses right. for life. So that's going to be that they have a place. It's not, um, it's, it's not that they're now used goods or damaged. They're, they're going to have their place. That's yeah, right. yeah, thank you. Yes. Stay with us for the next segment on Franciscan University Presents.
As the president of Students for Life, I am able to lead the club in going to pray at the abortion clinic. And while we're there, we also um, have trained sidewalk counselors who will talk to the women before and after their abortion. And sometimes I've been able to give post-abortion healing pamphlets to some of the women that are leaving the abortion clinic. And it's amazing to see their faces change when they, when they receive these pamphlets from uh, a face of suffering and a lack of hope to believing that they might be able to heal, that they can heal, and that there is hope uh, for them after their abortion. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and frequent confession and things like that. Because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, our panelists here are our theology professors here at the university, uh, the students operating the camera and the equipment, uh, I'm myself the host, and it's all being recorded here at Franciscan University's Communication Arts Studios. Um, uh, Martha, so we, we've been talking quite a bit about the, the suffering, the, the process of healing, uh, but let's talk a little bit about uh, helping those women more specifically. And when, um, when we think about uh, this, we, we want to talk about the pastors. What role can pastors play in this healing process in supporting uh, women uh, who come from a broken background like this, that have experienced an abortion? Well, I think many priests are afraid to speak about abortion. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons, priests have told me that they're afraid because what if there's someone in the parish who had an abortion and they say something that's the wrong thing, that person's gonna feel hurt, sure. and they don't wanna make somebody feel judged. And yet, when they don't say anything, that's also hurting because right. if yeah. women are sitting there for 10 years thinking, well, I'm permanently excommunicated, it's too late for me, they need to hear those words, as we said, of Evangelium Vitae, that that uh, Father of Mercies waiting to forgive you yeah. and to know that there are programs within the Catholic Church you know sometimes I've spoken at churches and people are amazed just to know that the US Catholic bishops have a program called Project Rachel which is available in almost every single diocese in the United States and Project Rachel is dedicated to having a phone line where people can be referred either to counselors who have training, to priests who have especially been trained to be sensitive to this issue and mm -hmm. to want to help women to be able to talk and do counseling as well as provide sacraments. And um, within Project Rachel, many, many of the local Project Rachels will do the Rachel's Vineyard weekend retreat as one of their outreaches. They may have the evening of prayer as a service that they offer. They may have a range of things, support groups. So there's really all kinds of help available, but you wouldn't know that very often when you right. look at the church bulletin or when you go right. to church on Sunday. And I think also, I think, I think the silence is not helping people. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if priests would, when they talk about sin, to say, well, you know, God is ready to forgive all those sins during Lent. If it's this, if it's that, if it was an abortion, He wants you bring that to Him so that He can uh, heal you, you know? I do and think to that mainstream there, it. I think that there's a shift that's taking place now that, you know, abortion's been illegal right for more than 40 years. 
I think the focus has been on the unborn baby, the fetus, you know, mm -hmm. whatever they call it. But now the, the, the shift is it's also looking at the woman. That's right. And the need that she has for the deep healing mm -hmm. and the assurance that she needs to know that God is forgiving her, that the church is proclaiming this, and that she, in fact, could be empowered to go forth as an apostle of mercy to reach others, not in some big public way, but in the deeper interpersonal ways that Project Rachel affords. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah, so priests need to break the silence yes, and open I think that door. Because they could yes. probably open the door for them. I mean, for I, they are our fathers, you know, mm -hmm. and that image of the Father of Mercy is best seen. And that, that silence seems so inexplicable to me mm -hmm. and morally delinquent. Well, but I think, I think it's good, it's well-intentioned because they really are afraid mm -hmm. that it will be misunderstood. And so there, there is some genuine fear there. And so I think in the church, I think we need to do more and more training and education of the priests and let them have dialogues with yeah. women who've had abortions. One of the things that's mm. a good sign is that the women more and more are speaking out now. There's two grassroots organizations. There's a group called Operation Outcry and also a group called Silent No More. Silent No More is a, was initiated by Priests for Life as well as Anglicans for Life. And in, in both cases, women who want to have their story told uh, are getting up and speaking and at public events. And they're doing that both as education so that other women will know you don't have to be silent, you can come and get help. And it also lets younger women know there's two sides to this story. The culture's telling you one thing, our experience was different. So, you know, consider all this when you're making your decisions. Yeah. I, I remember years ago a student telling me that uh, in her parish, the priest would never talk about sin. Mm. And when she accosted him, he said, well, it would only upset the parishioners. And after all, this is just moments before we circulate the collection mm. uh, basket. And I don't want to compromise <laughs> that. That, that wow. is really shocking. Mm. I mean, you're much kinder than I am, and mm. maybe you want to sanitize their silence, but I, I find it really shameful. Uh, mm. Bernanos says, blessed be sin if it teaches us shame. Mm. There's something salutary about shame, provided you can assuage it mm. in a context of forgiveness, sacramental confession. And what else is the priest up there for mm. if not to speak the truth in charity? Mm. Mm. That's what he's trained to do. Switching gears from, from pastors uh, to medical professionals. You're a medical professional. How, how can medical professionals or um, assist in this process? And I don't know if you want to even well, share. Well, yeah, let me, let me tell you. One of the first patients that I had when I was in my training program for psychiatry was a woman who'd had an abortion. Well, I mentioned earlier her husband and her pastor had thought this was a good idea, and so she went along with it, but she showed up at the hospital. Um, I was concerned because I was young, I was inexperienced, and I had a supervisor who was there to train me. And so I said, well, you know, she's very concerned about this abortion. My supervisor said, well, she's just obsessing about it because she has a chemical imbalance. When we give her the medicine and it takes effect, it's wow. not going to be a problem anymore. And my sense was there was something there. This woman was saying that she was a well woman until she had this abortion, and now the abortion had caused her to be unable to pray, unable to face the day and take care of her living children. And I didn't think that medicine was going to fix that. Wow. And so that really propelled me on a journey to, that's really why I got the master's in pastoral ministry, was because I wanted to get some pastoral counseling training. I thought, mm. well, if this is all medicine has for an important issue for women, this is not enough. But mm. you know, um, over time, many women came to me. I advertised when I was a young 
physician in private practice, I advertised that I would specialize in women's issues, and I listed different things, you know, um, you know, if there'd been past sexual abuse or pregnancy loss, abortion, miscarriage, any of the women's issues. And so many people sought me out and came to me, but I didn't, you know, I didn't go to them, they came, and I took wow. whatever, you know. But you put yourself out there, you, right, you wanted to share Right, that. exactly, and so, um, over and over, I saw people, and I think one of the things that medical providers have to do is you have to ask, first of all, when you're taking a history, one thing that people taught me was it's good to just ask, you know, when you're asking, well, um, is there any family history of heart disease, or is there any this or that, you're going through a long list of things, to ask, have you ever had any pregnancy losses, any miscarriages or abortions? Yeah. And then to say, well, does that affect you at all anymore? And they may say, oh, no, it's fine, but you may see the tear also. Mm -hmm. And to say, well, you know, the only reason I ask is that I, I know some ways to help with those, and that can be an issue for women. And right away, they oh, well, what do you do, or what are the right. programs? And right. they, they may ask, and so then you have a conversation. And if you don't ask, you'll, you won't find out. Yeah. And I think the other thing, though, is that very often when women, say if a woman has been raped, and then she comes and says, well, I, I have nightmares because I was raped and this is the problem. We have protocols, we have treatment processes, we have things, we know what to do, and we believe her. But when it's abortion, very often it's not believed because uh. the myth is, that it couldn't possibly be the abortion. Right. Because you know? legally and, and well, politically it's not acceptable. A, it's, it's not a problem. Yeah, you know, the, the yeah, culture has yeah. taught us it's not a problem. Well, it's very clever, very adroit the way that you insert this uh, in, in an otherwise clinical session. Mm -hmm. You make it as non-threatening as possible. Right. You're, you're just trying to be solicitous, evoke from the patient uh, whatever concern may be haunting her life, mm -hmm. and it comes up. And, and why shouldn't it? Because what bond could be deeper, more intimate, more profound than the the bond between a mother and a child. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, I mean, the way you expressed it was a, a, a verbal strategy that was sensitive yeah. and sensible and non-intrusive, and I just thought, yeah. how disarming, but also yeah. how healing, at least yeah. how initially healing that could be. Yeah. It's very important in every way we can to let people know there is no judging, because this is a group of women that's very sensitive to judging and very fearful of being judged. Right. Mm. And so we have to really give that message that there is no judging. Although they've been judging themselves. They have been that's judging right. themselves that's more right. harshly than anyone would. They're very often saying terrible things to themselves. And, and the irony, it's a, it's a tragic and painful irony, is that they're also being judged by the industry, that's by true. the pro-abortionists, yeah. because it's like, You've got hang-ups. You've got religious residue. Mm. You've got moralistic hang-ups. You know, you've got personal things that you got to remove these filters and just look at the fact that you got rid of tissue. Mm -hmm. And so there's that sort of very subtle targeting that mm. is, right, right. you know, it's they're being judged. Their pain. And yeah. it's, it's like there's something wrong with them exactly. that they didn't go and do the program right. the way they were supposed to. Well, the judgment to. strips them effectively of their humanity, their mm -hmm. maternal status, the fact that they're women, uh, that they're hurting, that they've sinned. I mean, they don't treat them seriously. Right. They trivialize them. They treat them as objects. Right. You force them with into your the child, shadows. shame on you. Right. You yeah, them, yeah. You Pushing you them, them into the shadows and to live in the right. darkness without right. healing. So medical professionals can, op again, open that door mm -hmm. to that conversation where healing and, and forgiveness might be possible. Mm -hmm. So talking about family and friends, what, what can family and friends do uh, when there's somebody who is suffering from an abortion? Well, in some cases, the family or friends may not know because sure. it's, it's so secret. And often, only one or two people know about the abortion, if anyone. Sometimes it's been kept very private. Um, but th there's something that David Reardon talks about that he calls stealth healing. And that would be for someone watching this program today to say to their daughter or their best friend, just say, you know, I was watching a television program and I saw 
that I had no idea what women suffer after an abortion and that the Catholic Church has programs to help people to heal. Um, I had no idea. I never heard about Project Rachel before. I didn't know about the Rachel's Vineyard Retreat, but I just looked it up online, and it's wow. amazing all the things that are out there. That's right. And uh, who knew what the Pope said? So I think you can have these conversations, That's beautiful. and you will open doors for people. Yeah. But I think certainly when you know that an abortion has taken place, just to make that information available and That's encourage great. people to get the help. So just, know, just put it in there. I like the put way it out there. Stealth, <laughs> stealth healing. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, what what do they not need to hear from us? So if that if they, if we we can share some of those things in a stealth way. What are some things that they don't need to hear from us? Well, uh, one of the things is just nothing judging, you know, that they're, they're judging themselves more harshly than anyone ever would. Yeah. And they need to just, you know, to recognize they've been, they've been through a lot and they may be suffering much more than we realize. They may be having suicidal thoughts. Mm. I was surprised. I did an outcome study of our Rachel's Vineyard retreats and um, we had 241 women and we asked them for some of their background. And I said, after the abortion, but before you came on the weekend, did you ever have suicidal thoughts? And something like 65% were having suicidal thoughts. Um, maybe not all the time, but they had, that had taken had, place. Okay. And so they're judging themselves harshly. And you know, it, it's a difficult time for many of them. And we just need to be gentle and to not say the judging things, I think. That's the biggest thing. You know, uh, Father Benedict Grishel of, of Happy Memory used to say that when, when a penitent goes into the box, he's already judged himself mm -hmm. sufficiently to go there. And the last thing he needs from the priest is to have him dump on him and say, what a depraved soul you are. You know, right. what, what the hell happened to you? You're so <laughs> vile. You're back again. Mm. I mean, that's not very freeing. Yeah. That's yeah. not how God receives the sinner. That's right. The prodigal son who returns home. Mm -hmm. But to not step into the box, you know, to, yeah. you know, to keep it to yourself. You know, I, I remember our pastor, Monsignor Jans, would say that when the devil attacks, he tempts by taking away the sense of shame. And once he successfully tempts you and gets you to sin, he restores it a thousandfold right. so that you just are too ashamed to think that you could possibly be forgiven. And I mean, that's universal. It really mm -hmm. is for men and for women. But this, this, this message of mercy and hope for healing, you know, that has got to get out. And I like these sensible, these sensitive, these verbal strategies for the medical professionals, but also for family and friends. That's so great. Yeah. How, how can scriptures uh, play a role uh, in the healing process uh, with post-abortive women? For women who are struggling with issues related to the baby, I often point them to the, uh, the story of Jesus with the children. And you know how the, the women were all bringing their babies to Jesus and the disciples said, no, 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 he's busy. He doesn't have time for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jesus was indignant and said, let the little children come to me. And so you could think about it in the sense that if Jesus, when he was a man on earth, would not let anyone come between him and the babies, if we believe that he is at the right hand of his father now, who is there who would come between him and the children who needed looking after? Mm. And so I think women can feel secure with that scripture mm. that you don't really need to look further than that, that that's, that's one that's very comforting. Uh -huh. But I think, I think many women find that as they look into the scriptures and see God's mercy, God's care, um, there's richness there. Oh, that is beautiful. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. From a neuroscientist's perspective, it's inconceivable to think how a process that has changed this woman's body so significantly in order to prepare it for the carrying of that new life within her 
in terminating, causing that sudden unnecessary termination of that life would not cause significant negative physiological and psychological changes to that woman, such as depression and anxiety. Uh, this brings us to, to, to the understanding, should bring us to the understanding, that we need to give these women significant care when it comes to addressing the problems that they are facing or the difficulties that they face potentially as a result of having undergone an abortion. I'm in the 4 plus 1 program here for counseling. It is very academically challenging, but the classes are a lot of fun. The teachers do love what they teach and they know their fields very well. If you're interested in mission, that's a big thing here. I did San Diego for two years. That was a youth ministry mission. There are a lot of opportunities here to be actively pro-life, praying outside the abortion clinic. There's a big group that goes to the March of Life here from campus. There's just so much you can do as far as faith goes. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about the healing following an abortion. Um, Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a depressing subject, but you infuse such a, a sense of hope into the conversation. I'm, I'm very grateful, and the work you do is so admirable. I, I can't commend it enough. It's just a pity that more people don't know about it. I was really struck by that takeaway line about Jesus telling his disciples, look, you suffer those kids to come unto me. You know, the kingdom of heaven is, is, you know, consists of children like these. Uh, I mean, only the childlike can get in. Uh, somebody once criticized uh, Pope Paul VI after Humanae Vitae for sort of sticking his nose into a bedroom. And how would you like an 80-year-old man telling you uh, how to perform in the bedroom when in fact he's reminding the couple that Jesus is already there. Mm. You can't separate him from sex or love or life. And he's there with that unborn child. And that's why I was so moved by the example you gave of uh, women naming the child because that restores a kind of lost identity. And when you can name someone, you invoke them. They become invocable. You can call upon them. That's why it's so important that God gives us his name in the scriptures. And then that other practice uh, in, in trying to work out uh, an ethic of forgiveness. You, you create this little manger scene and you put down pieces of straw every time you make a sacrifice yeah. so that by Christmas it's just teeming with straw for the baby Jesus. Mm. I mean, that, that I think is really, really effective, really wonderful. Mm -hmm. So thank you for everything you've done. Mm -hmm. thank, you. thank you. Scott? Yeah, I'm reminded when you mentioned Pope Paul of a conversation I had last week with a Protestant pastor who I don't think will ever become a Catholic, but he, he testified to the fact that in reading Pope Paul VI, he said, that man was not only a prophet, he was pro-women. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, you know, this has got to get out, not just a better job for you Catholics, but for us as well. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, this message is a part of that. It's an extension. Because it isn't just theoretically true that healing can take place. It's concrete experience that these stages of healing have been undergone now by many, many people, but it's needed for so many more. And I, I also think, you know, of in Scripture, Mary and Martha. You know, Mary represents the contemplative. And I'm so grateful for the contemplatives, the, the, the Carmelites, but especially the Sisters of Life. But Martha is your name, but it's also your work. You're out there in an active way 
you know, not only bringing healing as a professional, but bringing the message that you can, you know, even if you're not a professional, you can be an agent of healing for other people too. And nothing helps you get that feeling of forgiveness more than seeing how much God is loving other people through you, you know, and bringing healing. I want to yield the rest of my time though to you <laughs> to kind of allow you to share more. And I thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Martha. Well, um, I wanted to share actually um, some of my own background because when I was 19 years old, when I was an undergraduate at Michigan State University, mm -hmm. I was an abortion counselor. And at that time, I just, I was pre-med, I wanted to get experience within healthcare and to do things that would be good learning experiences and that would look good on an application. Right. And so I was working at a clinic that served low-income people and one of the things that I, I took special training, it was one evening of training, to be an abortion counselor. But I was taught at that time, there are no side effects of abortion. There's nothing to worry about. And so women who would have come to me at that time would not have had any expectation of any problems because I said, there's no side effects. You know, the only medical procedure in the world that has no side effects. <laughs> and of course now I wonder what may have happened to some of the women. Um, some, you know, you, you don't know. Um, but since then, the women who come to me have had problems. And obviously the women who didn't have problems didn't come to me. So I only know, you know, the ones I see are ones who had problems after abortion. But there's been so many. And I really continued to work in this area because people came and it was an unmet need that, um, you know, they weren't believed by other doctors or they weren't offered help. And to a large extent, nobody knows how to help because um, if you go to social work school, the party line is there's no problem from abortion. So there would be no need to have therapy directed to resolving those issues. If you went to psychiatry training, the belief is there's not a problem associated with abortion. So why would we have treatment processes? And so that was something where I really had to seek out and kind of see what worked. And to a large extent, the women have taught me uh, because before psychiatrists were involved in this, there were peer support specialists. There were women, we know in many areas of healthcare and mental health now, there's a value to peer support and that women are leading support groups for other women. You know, there's breast cancer support groups sure. and um, breastfeeding support groups. But now there have arisen many uh, peer support groups for abortion recovery. And so I've been able to learn from women who are already doing it, as well as little by little professionals have come on board and of course today with Project Rachel, there are many licensed professionals in every diocese who have taken training, who are trying to help, and who are available for individual referral. With every Rachel's Vineyard retreat, there are professionals who come and help out on those weekends. The Rachel's Vineyard weekend is a team approach where on a Catholic retreat, there's always a Catholic priest, a counselor or mental health professional, as well as uh, lay volunteers who are often women who've had abortions who are giving back so there's a place for them mm. to be able to help others mm. so it's been quite a journey because I've kind of been on both sides and seeing seeing the whole picture um, but I think for for listeners today um, for viewers I would say Project Rachel within the United States in every diocese Project Rachel has a web page which is going to be on the handout that I prepared for you. Rachel's Vineyard is a very good resource and some of these people like to go outside their diocese and sometimes when it's just a weekend you could go to a next door diocese to go to Rachel's Vineyard where you feel like nobody knows you and you know can kind of keep the secret although sometimes it's nicer to go closer to home people have their preferences. Um, one of the reasons I wrote my book, The Four Steps to Healing, was because sometimes 
women were too fearful to come to a Rachel's Vineyard. Mm. And I realized, you know, when I started doing Rachel's Vineyard, I only wanted to do that because it was so helpful. I thought anything else is just not quite as good. I, I just saw before my eyes, even my own patients who had not been able to really resolve their issues, then go to a Rachel's Vineyard and really experience some closure and real transformation. And so I felt so good about that. I only wanted to do Rachel's Vineyard, but it, I realized that there were some people who just couldn't take that step and they needed something where they could begin to heal at home. So the book was really for that purpose, although a dual purpose. It's for the women themselves as well as for the professionals who may just not have been informed or for clergy to help mm. them to get a better picture of what's going on. I also have the Rachel Network Evening of Prayer, which is going to be available soon on Amazon. And so that can be looked for. It can be done either prayers individually at home or prayers within a small group setting or in a parish. And so there's lots of ways that people can heal. And so I would encourage people to use the resources that are out there. And um, the one other thing I want to say is that men too can suffer after abortion. Sometimes they encouraged the abortion and later found out it really wasn't the choice they wished they would have made. And sometimes the woman made a decision that they didn't agree with. And so they're left too, but there are resources for men. So um, thank you. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, if, um, this program has been uh, both inspiring and encouraging and it has a lot of great information. If you want to learn a little bit more, uh, Martha has prepared a handout for us. You can get it at faithandreason.com or uh, by calling us, uh, the abortion recovery process. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. Um, we need to realize that there are so many walking wounded in this world. And we want to just be the brothers and sisters, uh, whether we're priests, whether we're medical professionals, or just friends and family. Uh, encourage them to seek help and healing. Um, thank you for watching Franciscan University Presents. This program springs forth from the very heart of our mission here at Franciscan University, which is forming those who will go out and transform the world. I want to invite you to come to campus here in Steubenville, Ohio to get your degree or to uh, go online to receive your, uh, your education and um, come to us maybe for some of our summer conferences or pilgrimages around the Holy Shrines or be equipped and inspired through faithandreason.com, our website. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.